earlier, um, I guess it was probably in July now, we took a couple of Sunday evenings to study through James chapter 1, and we saw there the truth of triumphing in trials, followed by triumphing over temptation as we split James chapter 1 into a couple of messages. And now I want to continue in James in the first half of James chapter 2. When someone lacks an understanding of the perspective, thoughts, beliefs, or philosophies of another person, There's a phrase that we'll sometimes use to describe that relation, and that phrase is being out of step. You might have a couple of people who have a disagreement over a particular issue or a particular belief or thought, whatever it may be, and you may say of those two in that context, they're out of step with one another. Sometimes you can just look at someone who doesn't fit in, seem to fit in with a group or a culture or society, and you might say of that person that they are out of step with the rest of the group, whatever the case may be. How many of you have ever heard or used that phrase before? Okay, many of you. James, who, remember, is the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this epistle of the New Testament. And we believe, many do at least, from their study of the Bible, that James was among the first New Testament books actually penned. You know that your New Testament books don't appear in the order they were written in necessarily. Okay, they're, they're ordered the way they are just by tradition to what seemed to fit well. But as far as which book was actually penned the earliest in the first century church, many scholars believe that James is right up there, if not is at the top. James, remember, was a leader, perhaps even what we might think of, of the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He led in that first church. And here, in James chapter 2, he speaks to believers in his day about a specific way that they were out of step in relation to God. Some scholars say that this epistle is penned as early as 44 to 48 AD. So not even halfway through the first century, we could say within 40 to 50 years likely of the time of Christ, And yet, early in that church, there was this issue 
that put the believers out of step in relation to God. And it was a, a behavior that James believed required attention and correction. Follow along in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James writes to the believers and he says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring... That weareth, uh, excuse me, in goodly apparel, and, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. How was the first century church demonstrating being out of step with God? The answer is, as James writes here, through the activity of partiality. The activity, the behavior of partiality. What does James reveal about this sin? I want you to see four ways that we are out of step in relation to God when we practice or behave the sin of partiality. Number one, would you note this? Partiality is out of step with God's character. And we'll define and describe partiality a little more as we go along. But notice this first. Partiality is out of step with God's character. James simply gives us a command. He says, if you have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we can simplify it and just say, if you are a believer in and follower of Jesus, don't practice what he calls in verse number one, respect of persons. 
the two don't mix. They don't go together. Have not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be a believer in and follower of Jesus and at the same time practice respect of persons or partiality. James, as he writes this, gives us a snapshot of God's character. Notice how he identifies Jesus in verse number one. He says, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives another phrase, further identifying Jesus. And what is that phrase? Notice it in verse number one. The Lord of glory. One Bible teacher remarks that this reference means that Jesus is the divine glory. James is writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to people who were Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, who had converted, if you will, to Christianity, who had become what we would call even today completed Jews. And so they would have understand when James referred to Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory, or if you will, the divine glory, the representation, the image of, of God's glory, this would be what the Jews would have called the Shekinah. You know that phrase, don't you? That, that word. Do you remember the burning, penetrating light of God's presence that descended on the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament? When, when Moses and the Israelites first completed the tabernacle and had gone through all that God said to do in building it and setting it up and setting it apart, the Bible tells us that God's, the burning light of his presence and glory came down and settled over and in the tabernacle. An equivalent type manifestation of God's presence and glory happened again at the dedication of Solomon's temple. And the Jews referred to this as the Shekinah. It's the burning, penetrating light manifestation of God's glorious, holy presence. It was the Shekinah. What does James say about Jesus? Whom, if you remember was his half-brother according to the flesh that he didn't even believe in until after the resurrection. James calls Jesus the Shekinah. He's the burning, penetrating light of God. John describes heaven in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you remember when the apostle John is describing heaven, he tells us that there's no need for the sun or the moon or the stars there. Why? Because it is lit by the glory of the Lamb. The Lamb provides the light thereof. When James makes this statement, calling Jesus Christ the, the divine glory, the, the, the Lord of glory, he is identifying the earliest Christians' belief that Jesus was and is God. 
Friends, if you don't grasp this truth, if it's not something that is settled in your mind and heart, if it's not something that, that you could take the word of God and, and show someone else that Jesus is God, let me encourage you to get a hold of this truth because this truth, this reality of the Bible is under attack today. There are many out there that deny and try to use in Scripture to show that no, Jesus isn't God. One of the primary groups, by the way, that is doing this are those who follow Islam. They will take, not the Quran, they will take the Bible and try to show you from the Bible that Jesus isn't God, that he never claimed to be God. And nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is God. So, so James identifies Jesus don't be a believer and in follower of Jesus who is himself God and have respect of persons. You say, Pastor, why is this so important to this discussion? Why are you spending so much time there? We're exhorted not to believe in and follow Jesus with respect of persons. In this Statement: This phrase, respect of persons. Again, James is a Jew, right? He's a converted Jew. He's writing primarily to converted Jews. And this phrase, respect of persons, was a Hebrew idiom. It, it, was, it was a foreign word to the Greek language that the New Testament is written. And in fact, you only find this word in a few other places in the Greek New Testament and it's always within the context of Hebrew believers or Jewish believers. That's who it's being written to because they understand it. It's a Hebrew idiom, and, and it means literally to lift up the face on a person. It identifies the idea of partiality or showing favoritism. It's used four times in the New Testament— the last place, as far as order of our books, is here. But it's also used in Romans chapter 2, 11, Ephesians 6, 9, and Colossians 3, 25. In each of those three passages, Romans, Ephesians, and Colossians, the Bible describes God as no respecter of persons. You go back and you look at Romans 2.11. You look at Ephesians 6.9. You look at Colossians 3.25. In each of those passages, Paul, the penman, is speaking of God, and he just flat out tells us, God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't show favoritism in that way of us thinking about it. Now James takes that, that in every other place identifies a character trait of God. And he says, if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, like he is no respecter of persons, you don't be a respecter of persons. Don't practice partiality. In other words, God doesn't do this. And in fact, one of the results of Jesus' death was the removal of racial lines or a focus on dividing walls. Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. And here, he's writing about, if you go back and study in context, he's writing about the racial divide between Jew and Gentile. 
he's writing about the dividing wall that was erected between them, not by God, but by years and decades and century of history and, and division. And Paul says this, For he, Jesus, is our peace, who hath made both one. Okay, who would the both be referring to in Ephesians 2? Jews and Gentiles. He's, he's taken Jews and Gentiles. He's made us one. He hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the, the opposition, the adversity between us, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. In other words, Jesus, through his death, through the shedding of his blood, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus has broken down that wall that divides us. He's erased those lines of division to make a new man unto himself. And by that, produce peace. So what do I do with this? God does not practice partiality. Jesus, who is God, demonstrated that in his own life. As he went about doing good, as he went about teaching and preaching the things of the kingdom of God, Jesus demonstrated that, and he abolished partiality by his death. And so when I practice partiality, I am living out of step with God's character, demonstrated by the perfect life of Jesus. His death tore down the walls and only my sinful nature builds them back up. Do you get that? Jesus tore down the walls and only my sinful nature builds those walls back up. Well, how is this revealed? James used an illustration I'm sure wasn't just a... Um, I don't think as James is writing here in James chapter 2, he's not writing something that was uh, foreign to them. I'm sure this was behavior that was going on in the church. He said, when you see someone come into the assembly, and he uses an interesting word here, by the way, the word he used is translated in other places of the New Testament by the word synagogue. He's not talking just about the called-out assembly of believers, as we often think of that Greek word, ekklesia. He, he's using the word that is transliterated synagogue, so he's actually talking about the meeting place, the assembly place, which in the early church wasn't usually a building like this. In the early church, it was a, a larger home. It may have been a public building that they... They reserved, if you will, or set aside at certain parts of the week for the purpose of gathering together to worship Jesus. And James said what was going on at times, whether it was in somebody's home or in one of those public venues, as they were gathering together, there were some who were being elevated while others were being put down. 
what were they doing it based on? You look at James chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it was based on material possession, wealth. You've got the person who walks in and they're wearing bright, colorful clothing, which in that day was a, a demonstration of wealth. Someone old ring, again, another demonstration of wealth in the day, and, and you, you set him aside for the best seat in the house, and then you have someone else come in who is not dressed real, real well. They're, they're kind of average uh, as far as what they're showing, and, and you make sure they get the standing room only place or the, the seat in the back. It's kind of the difference between me and, and somebody at the game. You know, the guy's sitting in the presidential box, and I'm sitting in the nosebleed section. James said that kind of behavior was going on in the church. It's been said that there are at least five areas where we as believers can be tempted to practice partiality, or to use this word, discriminate. We can discriminate on the basis of appearance. And we're not just talking about how someone dresses, are we? The color of their skin. The way they look, the way they present themselves. That can happen. We can discriminate on the basis of ancestry. Your heritage, your family background. We can be tempted to, to practice partiality on the basis of age. Treating some, maybe because of their age, as not as important, not as significant to the work, to the ministry of Christ, to the body of Christ. We can discriminate or be tempted to on the basis of achievement. And then, as was true in the first century church, on the basis of affluence. And what James tells us is this. If we practice these or similar behaviors, we are not aligning with God's character. We're out of step. Notice this, secondly, partiality is not only out of step with God's character, it's out of step with God's choice. What does is, what is Paul or James say here in verse number five? He, he says, hearken, listen. He says, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? What's James talking about here? Now let's not confuse this with Jesus in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. There, Jesus is very obviously talking about a, a spiritual quality. When James uses the term poor here, he's not using it the way J Jesus did. He is using it in the sense of material wealth. He says, God hath chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, while poor in the context identifies material poverty, God's choice is spiritual. 
Don't also confuse this with some idea, this just isn't the context of, of God allows the poor to come to be a part of his family through faith in Christ, and the rich can't. Now, yes, the Bible teaches some things about that, doesn't it? If a rich person trusts in his riches, it is difficult for him to come to faith in Christ to become part of the kingdom of God. Jesus taught that. And we, we could say it seems clear throughout history that people who are poor tend to more readily come to faith than those who are rich. But James is not establishing some distinguished people can't be saved, poor people can, and that's the way it is. That's not the point here. What James is talking about is that even those who are poor in material things are chosen by God to partake equally with all believers in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Like racial status, national status, or gender status, social status does not tell the story of someone's relationship with God, nor does it exclude someone from coming into relationship with God. In other words, God's offers for everyone. You don't have to be poor or rich to become part of God's family. Just like that offer is not only open for people of specific nations or specific races or, or specific social statuses or even a specific gender status, God's invitation is for everyone. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, what your status is in any way, shape, or form— if you come to God through Jesus Christ, you become a partaker of the inheritance of Jesus equally with every other believer. In Christ, no one's above you, no one's below you. And that's what James is talking about here. Even those who are poor, materially speaking, have the same claim to the inheritance in Christ as any other believer. So what does that mean? Again, James tells the believers that these issues should not influence their treatment of or attentiveness to others. You don't treat someone better because they're more affluent than that person. You don't pay more attention to that person because of their achievements or their, their ancestry, their heritage, than you do to that person. That is out of step with God's choice. In reality, James even says that the wealthy of this world are the ones who are prone to be antagonistic toward Christianity. Again, that's not a fast, hard rule. But typically speaking, that's true. And if you go back to the first century church, that was abundant. Remember, God does not show partiality based on status, and neither should we. Never forget that we are equals in Christ. When we think about what connects us, what 
what draws us together. We shouldn't be so consumed with or caught up with any status that this world gives us. What brings us together is Christ. He is the defining reality of our lives. He is the defining reality of our relationships with others. He is the defining reality of who and what we are as a church. So let's make it all about him. As I heard a, another pastor preach recently, the church should be the most loving place and loving group of people in all the world. And that should be true. Number three, would you notice this? Partiality is out of step with God's character. It's out of step with God's choice. Partiality is out of step with God's command. Look, if you would, at verse number eight again. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. This is a familiar command of Jesus, isn't it? You remember that when Jesus was questioned, what's the great commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and the second is like unto it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these, love God and love others, hang all the law and the prophets. If I can say it this way, Jesus said up to that point... All of God's revelation to man hinged on love God and love others as you love yourself. Think about that. All of God's revelation is wrapped up in that? Love God and love others? Yes. And James calls it here a royal law. We don't find it this descriptor for it anywhere else in the scripture the language identifies a law fit to guide a king or a law such as a king would use or choose or the king of laws as in it is the law to guide all other laws or it is the law above all other laws and isn't that what jesus said on this hangs it all. This could make, command should guide the believers. And James says, when you obey this command, you do well. But, verse number 9, what's he say? If ye have respect of persons, if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, if you elevate one above another, what does James say? Ye what? Commit sin. Friends, can we press pause for just a minute and be very clear? Showing partiality in any way, shape, or form is sin discriminating against another person is sin. And it's not sin in a simple sense. I want you to think about this. Partiality is both 
a sin of omission and a sin of commission. You remember the difference, don't you? What is a sin of omission? It's when we fail to do the good that we should do. What is a sin of commission? It's when we do the wrong that we shouldn't do. And I want you to see this. Partiality is both a sin of omission and a sin of commission. As a sin of omission, how is partiality a sin of omission, failing to do what we ought to do? Partiality is a sin of omission because it is a failure to love others the way you love yourself. What did James say? If you fulfill the royal law, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well, but if not, you commit sin. And what James is making clear is this. If you practice respect of persons, partiality, discrimination, you are sinning in that. You aren't loving others the way God says you should. Okay, so it's a sin of omission. You have failed to do the right that you should do. And I've made this point earlier this year with love God and others being our focus. If you and I were to, were to, were to scale, what is the worst sin you can think of? If you could think of like the, the most horrible sinful practice what would it be i think if we were honest with the scripture we would have to answer with all the horrible things we could think of ultimately the greatest sin is when we fail to love god and others as we should if jesus says this is the greatest law and on it hangs all of god's revelation the law and the prophets then I think it would be just as accurate to say then the greatest failure of man is to fail to obey that law. When you and I practice partiality, we fail to, to obey God in loving others as we should, whether it's individually or corporately. And then it's a sin of commission. Why? Because partiality itself is an active practice. You have to understand respect of persons, partiality, discrimination is not something that just happens passively. It's not something that you, you, there's no intention behind it. There's no action of any kind behind it. You're just living your life and oops, I, I, I was partial. I didn't even know. It's not passive in that way. Practicing partiality is an activity of the will we do that is contrary to God's command. Why? Not only because God said, love God and others as yourself, but because God said, don't have respect of persons. So it's a failure in both the sin of omission and commission. It is out of step with God's command. When we practice partiality, we behave in a sinful way. And it's a sin to be repented of. Number four, partiality is out of step with God's character, out of step with God's choice, out of step with God's command. Partiality is then out of step with God's compassion. 
Look at verses 12 and 13. So speak ye, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Oh, let's stop for just a moment. Judged by the law of liberty. That sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? To be judged by a law of liberty? We, we struggle to wrap our, our minds around that. How can judgment and law relate to liberty? I appreciate the way a Bible scholar, Douglas Moo, described it. He wrote, no longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden. For the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty, an obligation that is discharged in the joyful knowledge that God has both liberated us from the penalty of sin and given us, in his spirit, the power to obey his will. It can be described as a law of liberty because of what God has set us free from. Do you remember what God has set you free from? The penalty of sin, condemnation, eternity in the lake of fire because of our sin and rejection of him. But he set us free from that. Rather than death, we have life. Rather than darkness, we have light. Rather than living in deception, we have the truth. Rather than chains of bondage, we are wrapped up in cords of love and grace. And he's given us all the power that we need, all the resources that we need to do what he wants us to do. Paul describes it this way, Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And then, in verse number 13 of the same chapter, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. You can, but don't. Instead, by love, serve one another. And remember this, judgment for believers is not about retribution because of disobedience. When we talk about the truth that all believers will stand at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account, understand this, as you look forward to that judgment, it is not about retribution on you for your disobedience. The judgment seat of Christ is for believers, and rather than retribution because of disobedience, it's about reception because of obedience. It's about reward for following Christ and doing what's right. Fulfillment of the law, not in the sense of the Old Testament covenant, but in the sense of doing what God wants you to do, leads to reward. And then I'll ask you to notice this. As you continue reading in verses 12 and 13, the focus of the text is not judgment. What is the focus of the text in verses 12 and 13 of James 2? It's mercy. 
Look at it again. So speaking and so do is they that shall be judged by the law of liberty, for he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. That is an interesting phrase. It's an amazing phrase that, that again, we need to grasp. When he says mercy rejoiceth against judgment, the, the idea literally is that mercy exalts over, glories over, or boasts over judgment. In God's view, if I can say it this way, he prefers mercy to judgment. It goes along with what he said in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. God is speaking and said this, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Do you know Jesus would put this to the religious leaders in the Gospels? When he was eating at Matthew's house, with other publicans and sinners and the religious leaders showed up and said, how dare you and who you claim to be and what you do eat with these kind of people. And Jesus told them what? I didn't come to seek the righteous. I came to draw sinners to repentance. It's not the sick, uh, the well that needed a doctor, it's the sick. And then Jesus told them this, go and learn what this means. And do you know what he quoted? He quoted Hosea 6, 6. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What was the sacrifice all about? Think about it. The sacrifice was about judgment. The, the just penalty of my sin is being atoned to a degree by this blood sacrifice of this animal whose blood I am shedding in my place. What was Jesus' sacrifice all about? Was Jesus' sacrifice not about judgment? When Jesus hanged on the cross for you and for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says it this way, For God made him to be what? Sin for us. And what did God do to Jesus because he became sin for us? He poured out his wrath against sin. On Jesus Christ, God judged your sin and mine in his son. You understand salvation isn't God passing over our sin. It's not God just saying, well, your sin's really not a big deal. Salvation isn't, you know, you didn't sin so bad, so I guess I'll look the other way. You and I aren't going to come to heaven someday because we get there and God looks and says, well, you know, you weren't too bad, so I'll let you in. No, salvation is about the reality that Jesus went to the cross and your sin and mine he took upon and in himself 
and he was judged as a sinner in your place and mine that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God didn't overlook his judgment. God didn't overlook his justice, his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. In salvation, he judged all of our sin in Jesus. But doesn't that just reinforce this point? God loved you and me so much that he was willing to send his son to die on the cross for your sin and, and mine. Why? Because though God won't overlook his judgment, his justice, his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection, if we can say it this way, and I think we can properly, he delights in mercy. And what is, what is James driving home to you and I? When you and I practice partiality, we are not in step with God's compassion. Because that compassion is supposed to be what is demonstrated in your life and mine. If partiality makes up part of your life, we fail to demonstrate the compassion that God demonstrates to us. And do you remember how the Lord responded to the servant who would not show his fellow servant the same mercy he had been shown by the Lord? Matthew 18, 32 and 33, then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? even as I had pity on thee. He expected that the same compassion he had showed his servant, his servant would show to another. And friends, God expects no less of us. So to live with partiality, to practice that type of behavior, is to be out of step with God's character. It's to be out of step with God's choice. It's to be out of step with God's command. And it's to be out of step with his compassion. And if we're believers in and followers of Christ, we need to identify if there are any traces of that behavior in our lives and remove them. It's a sin to be repented of. Let's not be out of step with God.